Well, thank you, everybody, for uh, coming this morning, and I hope uh, you're, you're recovering from Steadfast. Was that not a great weekend? That was fabulous. And, uh, and just a few days ago, it occurred to me that we, um, we will have in the house here a resident expert on church history, and it's something that I'm interested in, as you all know. And um, so I thought, well, as long as we've got him trapped, as long as he's here in Bakersfield anyway, um, we may as well talk a little bit about that. So, um, Nate, thanks for being here just to chat on what I know is a, is a favorite subject of yours. Um, so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to launch into some, some questions I have that we'll, uh, we'll see where it leads. But I think it'll be interesting to you because it's very important for us to stay connected to our forefathers. So uh, let's, let's pray for a moment. Our Father, we bless you and thank you for the Word of God, which has been proclaimed so clearly these past two days. We thank you for the dozens of songs and hymns and spiritual songs that we, 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 we sang, Lord. What a wonderful time to just rejoice together. A little bit of heaven here on earth, Lord, and it makes us hungry uh, for that sort of fellowship and that sort of worship yet again. And so we thank you that... This is really the pinnacle of our time together, the Lord's Day, the day that Christ was raised from the dead. How grateful we are to be the ecclesia, to gather together, Lord, as your people. And we just pray that this time right now would be useful, would be beneficial to um, the church of Jesus Christ as we remember those who have gone before. And we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. So the the topic we're, we're doing today... Um, is basically the importance of church history to the local church. And um, I, I know that for uh, a lot of people, you just say the word history, and that equals class I barely made it through in high school. And and we understand that, but the history of the church is very, very different and, and a completely different way of thinking. So I've only got a few questions for you, Nate, and basically there are things that I know you're passionate about, and you can go as long or as short as you want on any of them. Uh, if we run out of time, we'll sing a hymn. Uh, so I, I want to start very, very general and then get into some specifics. Um, the, the first question is sort of a two-part question. You'll see why it's two parts. Um, how can church history be helpful to just the regular average church member? Um, and why is that important? And then kind of part two of that question is uh, to, the, to the busy church member that's, that's working, raising a family and all of that, what are some accessible and reasonable ways to really dive into church history and to, to make that a part of your life? Yeah, thanks, Steve. Let me start by just saying that it's a real joy for my wife and I to get to be here at Grace Bible Church this morning. And we had such a great time at the Steadfast Conference, and I know a lot of you here put in a lot of hours to make that conference possible. So I just want to say thank you for your hospitality, and Steve, thank you so much for letting me be here. And um, it's what a joy it is to see and get to participate with like-minded churches uh, around the country, around the state of California, and maybe especially in California. It's nice to know that there are fellow believers who are uh, being faithful to the truth and holding the line and uh, worshiping our Savior week after week. So I just want to say that it's a real pleasure for us to get to spend some time with all of you this morning. So thanks for having us. 
Uh, and thanks for being willing to talk about church history. You said, I'm trapped. I feel like all of them are trapped. So I'm not sure who's actually trapped here this morning. You know, when, uh, whenever somebody asks me a question about church history, my teenage kids all kind of roll their eyes because they know that the answer is going to be long. <laughs> so uh, you were wise to only have a few questions on there this morning, Steve. Though I noticed you made the first question a two-parter, which starts to sound a little bit like those exams you take in college where there's only a few questions, but they all have multiple parts. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> church history is about the church, right? So... Steve already alluded to it. When we hear the word history, I, you know, I teach church history at the seminary. And when guys come in, they think, oh, this is going to be a history class. And maybe they had a history class in high school or in junior college that they really didn't like. And uh, I, I tell them, this isn't really about history so much. It's about the church. And if you love the church, you're going to love church history <clears throat> Because we love the history of the things that we love, right? If you love baseball, you love baseball history. If you love cooking, you love the history of, of cooking. If you love uh, even your family history, right? Uh, if I was to tell you about the Booznitz family tree, you would all fall asleep almost immediately. But I find it fascinating because it's my family heritage. And you probably feel the same way about your family heritage. As Christians... Our spiritual family heritage is the church. And so when we study church history, we're studying not only the lives of those who have come before us, kind of in a Hebrews 11 kind of way, where we're motivated by their faithfulness, but also we're studying what God has done through his people over the last 2,000 years. And it's not just dates and dead people and the development of doctrines and those kinds of things. It really is looking at the lives of those who are now, even this moment, part of the church in heaven surrounding the throne of the Lamb, people with whom we will spend all of eternity when we go to join them. So I love thinking through the stories of faithfulness of people that we are going to meet someday, and we're all in this race together as we fix our eyes on Christ. So when I think of to the actual question that was asked, why should you engage in church history? I, I generally give three simple reasons, and the acronym is ABC. A is for apologetics, B is for biography, and C is just for connections and curiosity. But from an apologetic standpoint, you should know a little bit about church history so that when you talk to your friend or family member who's Roman Catholic, and they say, we're the church of church history. You can answer that objection. Or when you meet even a, a Mormon or a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness or somebody who's Eastern Orthodox, you can respond to specific attacks that they'll bring against evangelicalism because you understand the history of how those movements began and why they are not actually Orthodox. B is for biography. Uh, I think one of the most compelling aspects of studying church history is studying the lives of people who ran the race with endurance, right? People, in fact, sometimes students will think things like, you know, I don't like history, but I love biography. <laughs> uh, biography is just history well told. And so that's a great entry point into church history. And then from the curiosity and sort of connection standpoint, 
just being able to answer questions that you maybe have wondered, you know, like, why are there different denominations? Uh, church history answers that question. Uh, why aren't we Roman Catholic? Church history answers that question. Why do we talk about the Trinity in the way that we talk about the Trinity? Well, that's a biblical doctrine, but church history answers the question in terms of how that controversy about the deity of Christ played itself out in the early centuries of the church. So, unfortunately, many evangelical Protestants are very ignorant about their church history, especially pre-Reformation church history, and that makes them more vulnerable to really antithetical and dangerous ideas either coming from Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy or other movements. And so studying a little bit of church history is a, is a great way to arm and equip yourself to answer those kinds of questions. So apologetics, biography, and curiosity, that's my, my ABCs. In terms of how to access it, um, there's so much good stuff that's available through audiobooks, through podcasts. Uh, Stephen Nichols has a podcast called Five Minutes in Church History. So if you have five minutes every day and time to listen to a podcast, that's a great way to introduce yourself to church history. Uh, John Piper wrote a number of short biographies uh, under the label The Swans Are Not Silent, which is a quote from John Huss. But uh, those biographies are all available for free through Desiring God. So they're really short. They're chapter length. So these are very accessible, bite-sized ways to kind of engage. And again, I think the biographical entry point is probably the most compelling and the most accessible. Very good. Thank you. There are um, two other questions I wanted to make sure we get to. Um, so that gives you about 20 minutes on each one if you end up. This one is a long introduction, but I know this is passionate, a passionate topic for you. Um, if you ask the average church member in America today, you know, what's the history of the church from Christ to now? The basic impression that I've gotten is that, um, okay, well, there were the apostles and then the early church fathers and then something happened and then we had Catholicism and we don't know what happened to the church and then there's the Reformation and now we're Protestant. Um, somewhere along the line, uh, you know, heroes of our faith, also are claimed by uh, Roman Catholicism as heroes of, of their false faith. And um, so, you know, we, we both claim Augustine as a, as a hero. We both claim Athanasius as a hero and so forth. Um, just in broad strokes, I know that uh, pre-Reformation church history is, is important to you. Um, help us understand, because we have a huge Roman Catholic population in our county help us understand kind of the you know what what happened to kind of have the the church morph into what we now know as roman catholicism um we're probably more familiar with the reformation but but kind of give us the broad strokes of of how that came about yeah thank you steve that's a great question i'm trying to distill two semesters worth of content um <laughs> So maybe I can start by saying this, that we understand, and this is the right understanding, we understand that the Word of God is our authority, not church history. And so when you talk to uh, Roman Catholic co-workers, friends, neighbors, family members, it's always important to take things back to the Word of God. 
So getting, um, going round and round in some sort of debate about church history, while that can be helpful and useful in some contexts, I don't think that's where you want most of that conversation to be spent. You want most of that conversation to take you past church history back to the Word of God because Scripture is our authority and it's the gospel found in the Word of God that the Holy Spirit uses to convict the heart and to draw sinners to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. So uh, I probably say it I don't know, dozens of times every semester, but I always remind our students that Scripture is our authority, not church history. Now, in terms of engaging a Roman Catholic on the grounds of church history, there are some really good resources that are available, and just one that I would mention is there's a pastor up in Washington State. His name is William Webster, Bill Webster, and he's a a friend of the seminary, a friend of our ministry, He's a former Roman Catholic, and he's done a lot of work in early church history demonstrating that the early church was not Roman Catholic. And you can find all of that content on his website at christiantruth.com, which is a great domain name, christiantruth.com. And he's written a number of books along those lines. So if you really want to engage a Roman Catholic on that topic, I would recommend that you check out his resources. Now, to the question that you asked, Steve, um, We see a parallel example in Old Testament Israel. In Old Testament Israel, Israel is the people of God. They are given by God the law. They're given the priesthood. They're given all of these things that God ordains. And yet when we move throughout Israel's history, we see that eventually by the time we get to the first century, obviously there's many points along the way where there's false teaching and idolatry that enters in and Even Elijah at a certain point feels like he's the only one left. By the time we get to the first century of Jesus' day in Mark chapter 7, he confronts the religious leaders and he says to the Pharisees, you have elevated the traditions of men above the word of God. He rebukes them for that. A similar thing happens in the history of the church, both in Roman Catholicism, which is the Christianity that comes out of the western half of the Roman Empire, and Eastern Orthodoxy, which is the Christianity that came out of the eastern half of the Roman Empire. There were Christians to the east of the Roman Empire as well, um, but that's a little bit different than Eastern Orthodoxy. And within the Christendom that existed in the Roman Empire, and I use the term Christendom to refer to sort of the politicization of Christianity, you have over time man-made tradition eventually eclipsing the truth of the gospel. In talking about different movements that arise in church history, sometimes we use the word cult, And when I use the word cult, what I mean by that is a movement that calls itself Christian, but it was never Christian from at any point. From the beginning, it was a false movement. So that would be something like Mormonism. Joseph Smith was a false prophet, and Mormonism has been false from its very inception. We also use the word apostate or apostasy. An apostate movement is a movement in which the truth once existed— But because 
man-made tradition was elevated to a place where it began to obscure and distort and eventually completely eclipse that truth, that movement has become an apostate movement. Uh, That's what happened in Old Testament Israel. They reach a point of apostasy where they actually reject the Messiah when he comes. That same thing happens in church history where in both Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, during the Middle Ages, these man-made traditions reach a point at which they actually eclipse and obscure the gospel of grace, which is why a reformation becomes necessary. So we would refer to both Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy as apostate movements. They were movements in which early in their history that there was truth. Um, and in fact, it's technically, they, those movements don't even exist until the year 1054, because that's when you have a split in the Christendom of the Roman Empire and the movement in the West becomes known as Roman Catholicism. Just a little bit more. Now, now my kids are really rolling their eyes. But <laughs> they're not here. You can keep no, somewhere, somewhere on this planet, they're feeling dumb chills right now, going like, wait a second, something's happening. There's a disturbance. I can feel it. Um, so they, they empathize with you, and they're praying for you. But I kind of was the same way, Steve, actually, when I first started studying church history um, back in my seminary days, I came in pretty ignorant, especially about the first 1,500 years of the history of the church. It was, you know, the Apostle John dies around the year 100, and then things just kind of go dark. And it was the dark ages because I had never gone in and turned on the light. And it was just one of those things where it was like, I don't know, I think the church just kind of fell off a cliff into Catholicism into Roman Catholicism. And yeah, there was some guy named Athanasius and some guy named Augustine and some guy named Aquinas. And then Martin Luther kind of saved the church by nailing something to a door somewhere in the 16th century. And, and then we're good from there. Uh, that's not an adequate, nor is it really an accurate understanding of church history at all. Um, 2 Timothy 2.2, right? Paul tells Timothy, the things you've heard from me and trust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We think of that often as a structure for generational pastoral leadership today, and it is a good structure for that. But historically, what's kind of cool is Timothy did entrust the truth to faithful men, and those faithful men did entrust that truth to others also, and that continues for many generations, and we can trace that faithful witness through the first several centuries of church history, I would argue through at least the first millennium of church history. Uh, Things do start to get a little bit, you say, okay, well, where does that man-made tradition really start to... um, clash with this faithful understanding of gospel truth. A major turning point takes place in the fourth century when Emperor Constantine converts to Christianity, and the result is that the entire Roman Empire converts to Christianity. But as John Calvin rightly pointed out, the empire was baptized without truly being converted, meaning everyone claimed to be Christian, but many of them were still pagan. And they took their Roman paganism and they brought it with them into Christianity. And the result was that there were pagan practices that got Christianized. 
So instead of praying to the pantheon of Greco-Roman deities and lighting votive offerings and pouring out libations and other things in honor of those deities, right? Because if you need help for a certain thing, you pray to a certain deity. That all got transferred over to the saints. Where do prayers for the saints and the lighting of votive candles and other things for the saints, where's that all come from? Not from the Bible. (laughs) It comes from the Christianization of pagan practices that were adopted into Christianity when the Roman Empire Christianized. And that's in the 4th century. And as those kinds of things, the seeds of that corruption get sown, they bear the fruit then of increasing corruption over time. And you have the elevation of Mary and the development of purgatory and uh, the idea of uh, the sacramental system as being necessary for salvation. And all of these things gradually develop over the centuries from about the 5th century to about the 13th century. And I would argue that it was actually in the 13th century where the Roman Catholic system passes the point of no return, meaning that... um, Anyone who really is a faithful follower of Christ, they, they can't stay in that system anymore, and the Reformation becomes necessary, and you start to see the pre-reformers and those kinds of things. So, sh- short answer long here, right? Short story long. Um, you can keep going if you want. Well, I'll, well, I'll land the plane. The... <laughs> The reality is what Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, what they represent is man-made tradition, much of it from pagan sources, man-made tradition being at first allowed to come in and then over time given a level of authority to where it actually begins to eclipse, obscure, and distort the truth of the gospel, which is why a Reformation becomes necessary The reformers were trying to take the church back, not only to what the Bible teaches, that of course was paramount, but also to what the early church had taught and believed. And in that sense, it was an effort to reform the church, not an attempt to create some sort of new movement. So in that sense, the the reformation didn't ever reform the church. It just, we, we have Protestantism now as a result. Um, so let me keep going on that. Um, I, I remember, uh, you know, as a as a younger Christian, when I first heard about the Great Reformation, my kind of impression was that, um, well, Martin Luther started it, and uh, on October thirty first, fifteen seventeen, uh, like you said, he nailed something to a door, and then, and then that's what got things started. But you've always had a, a big interest in and, and an emphasis on the pre reformers. Those uh, faithful men in the in the one to two hundred years before uh, Martin Luther, can you just give us kind of a again in broad strokes um, some of the important things that happened or or people that kind of paved the way um, for for Martin Luther? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the key issue at stake in the Reformation. Uh, we generally think that the key issue at stake in the Reformation was the doctrine of justification. 
and that certainly was a very important focus of the 16th century Reformation, but it wasn't actually the catalyst for the Reformation. The catalyst for the Reformation was the realization that Christ alone is the head of the church and that his word is the authority for the church. So if you go all the way back to the 12th century, just before uh, sort of that point of no return in the 13th century with what's called the Fourth Council of the Lateran, where the Roman Catholic Church officially dogmatized the sacramental system, uh, just be prior to that, you have a man in... Lyon, modern-day France, whose name was Valdo, looks like Waldo, but Valdo, and uh, he's known as Peter Valdo, and Valdo was a merchant who converted to Christ, who came to saving faith, because he read a biography of a fourth-century merchant who had become convicted over his love of money, and as a result of that, Valdo himself was convicted that he loved money more than God, And so he renounced his love of money, actually sold everything, and committed himself to a lifetime of preaching, and preaching the gospel in particular. At that time, there's no church in Western Europe except the Roman Catholic Church. That's the only system that exists. And so Valdo asks for permission, because you need permission from the local bishop or archbishop or eventually from the pope to preach, and he's denied permission. And at that point, Valdo is so convinced that God wants him to be a preacher that Valdo, quoting from Peter in Acts 5, says, I must obey God rather than men, and he continues preaching anyway. And we think he got the nickname Peter Valdo because of that statement. So Peter Valdo and his followers, known as the poor men of Lyon and eventually known as the Valdensians, they're committed to this idea that Obedience to God trumps obedience to the Pope, which is a very, very important and radical idea in its time because everyone else assumed obedience to the Pope was obedience to God. And Valdo was committed not only to the authority of God over the authority of the Pope, he was also committed to getting the Bible, the Word of God, into the language of the people, which was also a radical idea at the time. Going all the way back to the 5th century, there was a Bible translator named Jerome who had translated the Bible from the Greek and the Hebrew into the Latin language because everyone in the western half of the Roman Empire spoke Latin. And it was called the Vulgate, which means the common translation, and it was called that because it was intended to get the Bible into the common language of the Western Roman Empire, so that people could hear and read and understand the Word of God for themselves. A thousand years later, when people in Western Europe no longer spoke Latin, the Roman Catholic Church had preserved the Word of God in the Latin language and viewed it almost like people who hold to a King James-only position today. They viewed it as like the only authentic translation. It was the only way that anyone could interact with, with the Bible. Well, that was a problem because no one spoke Latin. So unless you were a priest or unless you were highly educated, so nobility and priests, no one else could understand the word of God. And Valdo recognized that was a problem. He actually hired a couple of priests to translate the Bible from Latin into the Piedmontese dialects that were spoken in that part of France right near the Italian Alps, the Italian border there. 
for all of this trouble, for him wanting to be a preacher and for him wanting to get the Bible into the language of the people, Valda was declared a heretic and he and his followers were severely persecuted by Roman Catholic authorities. Uh, interesting story about the Valdensians. They were so committed to the word of God that tradition says that different family groups would memorize large portions of the scripture so that if Roman Catholic authorities ever came and confiscated their Bibles from them, they would be able to, those who escaped, would be able to reconvene and they'd actually be able to reconstruct the Bible from memory. So it just goes to show you the love that they had for the scriptures. So starting with the Valdensians, you have two important sort of precedents that are set. Number one, Christ is the authority over the Pope. And number two, we have to get the word of Christ in the language of the people so that people can be exposed to the preaching and teaching of God's word. You move forward about a century and a half and you encounter a guy named John Wycliffe. He was at Oxford. He's called the Morning Star of the Reformation. He actually lived at a time before the standardization of the English language, which means you can find up to 16 different variations of the spelling of his last name. It's kind of fun. Uh, that's for free. That's if you're ever on Jeopardy. So uh, Wycliffe is committed to these same things, and he sees the corruption. Now, he's a scholar. He's not just a layperson, but he sees the corruption in the Roman Catholic system, and he is eager and bold enough to confront that corruption. And again, that corruption, he says, you know, he feels that he has the platform to confront that because he's looking to Christ as his authority, not to the Pope as his authority. And Wycliffe is also committed to Bible translation. So he and his fellow scholars at Oxford, they translate the Bible from the Latin into English. Uh, Wycliffe translated the Gospels, we believe, and maybe some other parts of the New Testament, and then his other fellow scholars there at Oxford translated the entire Bible. And his followers were called Lollards. They went all throughout England preaching and singing and, and just reciting the Scripture in English which again was revolutionary. I know we all take it for granted as we, you know, dust off our dozen copies of scripture that we might have at home. But at the time in the 14th century, this was absolutely revolutionary. And the Roman Catholic Church tried to shut him down. Now, Wycliffe had a political protector, the brother of the King of England, a guy named John of Gaunt, was a big supporter of John Wycliffe. So Wycliffe survived that persecution and wasn't executed. He died of natural causes. But his views were incredibly controversial. He confronted the corruption of the Roman Catholic system based on the authority of Christ, and he insisted that the word of God must be available in the language of the people. A generation later, uh, you have actually a major transference of ideas between England and a place called Bohemia, the modern-day Czech Republic, because the Queen of England during the time of Wycliffe was a princess from Bohemia. And there was a guy there in Bohemia, in Prague, named John Hus, more accurately, Jan Hus, uh, H-U-S, his last name, he was from Husenitz, which sounds like Busenitz. I, I, there's no relation, but it's like the coolest thing I've got going for me in church history. Um, Husenitz, Busenitz, hey, yeah, th there we go. Um, it actually means Gooseville, Husenitz. Hus is the Czech word for goose, or the Bohemian word for goose. 
So John the Goose is this pastor scholar there in Prague, and he's influenced by Wycliffe's ideas. So in Prague, this is now in the late 1300s, early 1400s, he's preaching in a church called the Bethlehem Chapel. And if you go there, it's a church building where there was no chairs. Everybody had to stand for the entire church service, right? So a standing room only, very literally. And they would pack the place in. He preached to as many as 3,000 people a week. And he preached in the Bohemian language. So again, he's getting the word of God into the language of the people. And the result is that people are just resonating with this as they hear truth that's been locked away by a corrupt Catholic system for centuries. Uh, Jan Hus was so controversial, he eventually has to leave Prague, even though the king of Bohemia is sympathetic to him. And in the countryside, he writes a book on the church. It's called De Ecclesia, on the church. And in that book, he has the audacity to suggest that Christ alone is the head of the church, not the Pope. Um, Side note, actually in the papacy at that time, there was a schism between uh, rival popes. There were actually two rival popes, each claiming to be pope, and eventually there were three rival popes, each claiming to be pope. So when John Huss and John Wycliffe were like, the papacy's broken, people were like, yeah, it kind of is. So in any case, short story long again here. Uh, Huss writes this book on the church, Christ Alone is the Head of the Church, and for writing this, such controversial views, he is summoned to a council called the Council of Constance, modern-day Germany, and at the Council of Constance, though he's promised safe passage, when he arrives in 1414, he is arrested, he's thrown into a dungeon, he's tortured, 10 months later, after a mock trial, He's led outside the city of Constance, and he is burned at the stake in 1415. Uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, John Fox, writing a century later, says of John Huss that, uh, now this is probably a legend, but it's an interesting legend, that Huss said, today you cook a goose, right? That phrase in English comes from the execution of John Huss. Today you cook a goose, but in a hundred years, a swan will arise from the ashes whom you will not be able to silence. That's where John Piper gets that swans are not silence label for his, uh, for his books. And those who, uh, even John Fox, points out that it was about a hundred years later that Martin Luther shows up. And Luther had a swan supposedly on his family coat of arms. And they like to make that connection. But... Luther really did build on that, those core precedents that were set by Valdo, Wycliffe, and Huss. Really the two main ones being, number one, Christ is the head of the church, not the Pope. And number two, we have to get the word of God into the language of the people. One thing that had happened between Huss and Luther is what we call the rise of humanism, which in religious circles, was the recovery of the ancient manuscripts of Christianity, both the church fathers and the original texts of Scripture, in the Greek and the Hebrew, so that by the time we get to the Reformation, when they're doing the translation work, it's not from the Latin anymore, which is like a photocopy of a photocopy, right? It's not very good. They're going straight from the Greek and the Hebrew into, in Luther's case, the German, in Tyndale's case, the English, and the other languages of Europe. So the Reformation is the result of two things. 
a commitment to Christ as the head of the church and access to the word of God in a language that people can understand. Two semesters in 10 minutes. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I want to fast forward now to, uh, uh, I guess, modern church history, if that's uh, not an oxymoron. Um, our church here is is very connected to Grace Community Church. Um, uh, when uh, our church was struggling, uh, Grace Advance came alongside us, and um, that's how I ended up here. I'm proud that my uh, ordination certificate is signed by John MacArthur and, and and um, many people here have been blessed by the ministry of Dr. MacArthur. And uh, while he is uh, still going, and some would say stronger than ever, based on his stand he's taken in the last 18 months, uh, just amazing, um, there's no denying that he has a place in church history. Um, for, for you personally, I know that's been literally your entire life. Uh, what, what a privilege. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on what impact you feel like his ministry has had uh, around the world, what it's had on the church, um, and we had you know talk about this. I have my own thoughts, but I'm more interested in yours. So uh, again, take as much time as you want. I know you've been intimately involved with his ministry for a long time, and so I'd love to hear because um, it be an encouragement to all of us here. Yeah, thanks, Steve. That's that's a big question. Um, I think you're right that we are well. Let me just start by saying this. I I do tell my students this as well. Those of you who think church history is boring, be careful. You're part of it. (laughs) So we we are all part of the history of the church. Church history began on the day of Pentecost, just 10 days after the ascension of our Lord Jesus to heaven, and it will end when our Lord returns. So... um, Between his first coming and his second coming, we're in this period of time called church history. In terms of Pastor John's impact, that's that's such an overwhelming question to answer because there's so many different ways that one could go with it. There's no denying the reality that his impact is significant and that it was the Lord who has done this. Uh, Pastor John has often said, I'm not going to worry about the breadth of my ministry. I'm going to focus on the depth of my ministry, and I'll let God worry about the breadth of it. And we all who have gotten to be part of it have just been amazed to sort of rejoice in what the Lord has seen fit to do and to give thanks to him for the way that he has over and above what anyone could have asked for or imagined, he has blessed Pastor John's ministry. In the scope of church history, I think those who leave the most enduring impact on the history of the church are those who are most faithful to preach and teach the Word of God, because it's the Word of God that actually has lasting impact through the power of the Spirit. I think of John Calvin, for example, in Geneva. Uh, John Calvin is known for focusing on, in his preaching, the clarity and the simplicity of the text. That was his goal, was to preach every verse in a way that was clear and easy to understand. Simple clarity. And when I think of Pastor John's ministry, I I think those things are also attributes of his preaching ministry. The reason John Calvin's commentaries 
are so useful 500 years after he wrote them is because they're all about the text. And I believe Pastor John's ministry will have that same kind of enduring impact because his ministry is not personality-driven. It's text-driven. It's about the Word of God, and the Word of God does not return void. The Word of God is empowered by the Holy Spirit, and the Lord promises to bless those who tremble at his Word, Isaiah 66, 2. So I think what you're seeing, in fact, when we celebrated the 50th anniversary of Pastor John's ministry, that celebration was called the work of the word because Pastor John wanted that to be the focus. He didn't want to be the focus. He wanted the power and the depth and the truth of God's word to be the focus. And so we are incredibly blessed by him personally, um, but uh, his commitment to the, the, the simple clarity of the truth of Scripture is what gives his ministry its enduring power. And if the Lord tarries, I do think that many generations of future believers, those who love the simple clarity of God's word, that they'll resonate with the preaching ministry of John MacArthur for a long time to come. I, for me personally, I just am so tickled that I get to, like, be some sort of fly on the wall. You know, teaching church history, you kind of feel like, man, I wonder what it would have been like to have gotten to hear, you know, John Chrysostom, the golden mouth preacher of the fourth century, or Augustine, the great theologian of the fifth century, or Bernard or Anselm in the Middle Ages, or uh, Luther or Calvin in the Reformation, or Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield in the Great Awakening, or Charles Spurgeon in the 19th century. I mean, or what, yeah, what would that have been like? You know, it would have been so cool to go to the Metropolitan Tabernacle and hear Spurgeon preach. And then I think, you know, generations from now, people are going to be like, it would have been so cool to go to a shepherd's conference. I wonder what that would have been like. And I'm like, I get to do that. So, um, yeah, you know, I just feel grateful and privileged. Thank you. Let me uh, drill down a little bit uh, deeper. One of the uh, big impacts that he had on the church was when he wrote his book, The Gospel According to Jesus. And that that was sort of the shot heard around the world in a lot of ways. Just just talk about the impact that had on the church around the world from your from your vantage point. Yeah, I think I've heard Pastor John talk about his own perspective on that, and even that in his ministry there have been numerous times when he has been called upon, that God has called upon him to stand up and defend the gospel. And the gospel is something that we must defend. When we think of why the Reformation was necessary, it was necessary to defend the clarity and purity of the gospel. And the same thing was true in the 1980s leading up to the early 1990s when he wrote that book. There were those who were teaching that they were teaching what we would call easy believism, that as long as you, you know, walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, made a decision at some point in your life that you could live however you want and you had your fire insurance and your eternal fire insurance and you didn't have to think about Jesus at all. I mean, some of their, uh, one of the advocates of this view went so far as to say that you could openly deny Christ at a later point in life, but as long as you had prayed a prayer earlier, you were still saved. And 
Pastor John, rightly so, said, no, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Repentance, turning from sin and turning to God, repentance, which is a gift from God, 2 Timothy 2.25, it is a gift that God grants the sinner, that change of mind and that change of heart. But the fruit of that is seen in how a person lives. And if their life subsequent to their profession of faith, if their life doesn't reflect some evidence of the fruit of that salvation, then we have reason to question the authenticity of that profession of faith. Uh, that's what the book of 1 John uh, is all about, the tests of life. So he wrote that book to correct this easy believism view that was honestly misleading many people by giving them false assurance. But at the heart of it, the heart of it was a deep concern for the purity of the gospel. And even going back to what I was saying earlier, for the reformers, this is how Christ as the head of the church connects to their concern about justification, the purity of the gospel. If Christ is the head of the church, not the Pope, then his word is the authority for the church, not the teachings of a synergistic sacramental system. And if his word is the authority for the church, then the gospel that is articulated on the pages of scripture is the true gospel. And it is a gospel of salvation by grace alone. It's God's gift through faith alone, not on the basis of my works in the finished work of Christ alone. That's sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus. And if all of those things are true, then God gets all the glory, soli deo gloria. But the reformers in teaching that rightly understood that those who are justified by grace through faith are also regenerated, meaning they're transformed, which means that they will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not that their good works save them, not at all, but those who are saved will evidence that in a change of life. And if there is no change of life there, if there's no fruit, then we have reason to question the authenticity of the profession. Jesus himself said, Matthew 7, a, a tree is known by its fruit. And that's, that's why Pastor John wrote that book, because he, he cares about the gospel and he doesn't want to see people deceived. Thank you. And that it's been a huge impact around the world. And I know that even in our church, it's, it's a resource that we give out and, and it's helpful. Um, two more questions. Uh, the, the first one you can just take in, in, in broad strokes, and the last one is just for fun. Um, the, the first one, you've done uh, a lot of study on uh, the comparing what's happening in charismatic churches today with what was actually happening legitimately in the early church. And um, I sat in on one lecture you did. We've had people listen to it here. Um, just in, in broad strokes, uh, your basic premise has been that the that those who say those sign gifts have continued, uh, they don't really bear much resemblance to what actually happened in Scripture. So just just give us a few bullet points about that and, and kind of the conclusions you came to about that. We have um, a lot of former charismatics, and we have a, a big charismatic movement here in Bakersfield as well. Yeah, so the point that I was trying to make in... I teach a class on charismatic theology. It's really cessationist theology, but we want people to take it, so we call it charismatic <laughs> theology. And, uh, and in that particular lecture is that although the modern, the modern Pentecostal movement, which started in 1901, it started in, 
technically started in Topeka, Kansas, when a guy named Charles Parham had a little uh, traveling Bible school there, and a lady named Agnes Osmond supposedly started speaking in the Chinese language, which they thought was the gift of tongues, and they believed that they had re-experienced the miracle of Pentecost. Turns out she wasn't actually speaking in Chinese, and there's evidence that she wasn't, but in any case... That's how modern Pentecostalism started. It eventually made its way to Los Angeles is where it really got going with a guy named William Seymour and the Azusa Street Revival, and that was in the early 1900s. That's called the first wave, and again, it really got going in L.A. And then in the 1960s, there was what's called the second wave. It was known as the Charismatic Renewal Movement. It's where Pentecostal theology began to influence mainline denominations. And that started in Van Nuys, also in Los Angeles, at uh, St. Mark's Episcopal Church under a guy named Dennis Bennett. So the second wave also started in Los Angeles. And then about 20 years later, Pentecostal theology influenced evangelicalism through uh, some classes at Fuller Seminary, a guy named C. Peter Wagner, and a movement that was known as the Vineyard Movement, John Wimber, and then also Chuck Smith and the Calvary Chapel Movement. So, so the third wave also started in Los Angeles. So all three waves of modern charismatic Pentecostal teaching, they all really got started in Los Angeles. So when people ask me why we had to have the Strange Fire Conference in Los Angeles, it's because this is where the fire started, so we got to start putting it out. Um, But to your specific question, the modern Pentecostal movement has redefined the biblical charismatic phenomena. They've redefined those things to match their modern experience. And, and actually, the, the gift of tongues is a great illustration of that because originally, Charles Parham, Agnes Osmond, the first, they were called the Apostolic Faith Movement, the first Pentecostals, they genuinely believed that they were speaking real foreign languages just like the apostles to the point where they actually sent missionaries overseas to other language groups And they were surprised when those missionaries came back disappointed that no one there could understand what they were saying because they thought they were speaking real foreign languages because that's what the gift of tongues was in the New Testament. Um, Actually, the Greek word glossa means language. It can also mean the physical tongue, but it means language. So when you see tongues in your English New Testament, it's better translated as languages. And for all of church history, everybody understood it was real languages, including the original Pentecostals. They thought it was real languages. And they, when they discovered that they weren't actually speaking real languages, they had a decision to make, right? Either we admit we don't have the gift of tongues, or we have to change what the gift of tongues is. And they decided to redefine the gift of tongues. So now the gift of tongues, well, it could be real languages, but most of the time it's not anything that corresponds to a known human language. It's a private prayer language, or it's the, the tongues of angels. First Corinthians 13.1 has been badly abused in, uh, in this um, view of tongues. Uh, but they, they redefined what was actually happening in the first century in order to make room for their modern ecstatic experiences. 
The problem is the nonsensical strings of syllables that are called tongues today, glossolalia, right? Should have bought a Honda, but about a Kia. Um, (laughs) Those things have no bearing. They have no bearing to the biblical gift of tongues, right? The biblical gift of tongues was truly miraculous. People who didn't know how to speak Egyptian were suddenly speaking fluent Egyptian. For somebody to just start talking in a bunch of, again, strings of syllables that any linguist would look at and say, that's not a real language, that's not miraculous at all. So there's a cheapening of what was actually happening in the New Testament and a redefining of it in order to try and make room for it in modern experience. And the same thing is true with prophecy, and the Bible prophecy is always 100% accurate. In fact, (laughs) Deuteronomy 18 says that if a prophet makes a prediction and it doesn't come true, he's a false prophet. Um, You look at modern charismatic prophets and prophecies, and it's full of error. It doesn't match the biblical standard. The same thing is true with healing. You look at the healings of the New Testament of Christ and the apostles, 100% effective people with Real diseases were getting healed, and they were getting healed miraculously, fully, completely, permanently. Um, That's just not happening today in modern charismatic practice. So by turning prophecy into kind of spirit-led advice that can be full of errors and tongues into strings of nonsensical syllables and healing into, well, we prayed for him and we hope he gets better— by redefining the miraculous phenomena of the New Testament in those ways, the modern charismatic movement has cheapened the biblical reality in order to try and explain its modern practice. In Scripture, prophecy was always 100% accurate, tongues were real languages, and healing was a true miracle. And when we preserve what Scripture actually means by those terms— It makes what God was doing in the early church unique, and it makes it glorious. And you begin to understand the power of what was happening in the first century. Um, So. Thank you. That's that's very helpful. As a cessationist, I'll stop talking. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, One last question. This one is just for fun. Um, I I had the privilege of, uh, I have a picture of, uh, myself standing in John Wycliffe's pulpit, which is a which is a real that's uh, a treasure to me. I know you've gotten to travel to a lot of different places in church history. Uh, what are a couple of your favorites, and why were they your favorite to to visit? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I have had the opportunity to make a couple of trips over to uh, some of the Reformation sites. Uh, in fact, we were able to so. 2017 was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and I was able to go actually in 2016 and then again in 2018. So I don't know how I messed that up, but I missed the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. I was there for the 499th and the 501st. Um, I guess the one good thing is that the crowds were way less. Um, But in terms of favorite places... You know, that's a, it's a hard question to answer. I, I'm, I'm always grateful for getting to visit those places, but I also, want to, I also want to say at the same time that 
the people who were in those places, like there's nothing, there's nothing particularly holy or sacred about those places, right? We're, we don't make pilgrimages to places. Um, and so while, while being in a place, you go, wow, this is really cool. I think about the history that happened here, whether it's St. Peter's Cathedral in Geneva where Calvin taught or whether it's uh, the Castle Church there in Wittenberg or you go to places in England where some of the Marian martyrs, that's the martyrs who died under Queen Mary the first, were, were burned at the stake there in London. And you just go, wow, this is amazing. People gave their lives for the gospel right here. And I haven't been to Edinburgh, but I know there's a place in Edinburgh where some of the Scottish martyrs, their initials are actually carved into the ground where they were killed, George Wishart and others. And you just go, wow, that's amazing. But I don't think any of those individuals would want us to put them on a pedestal. And I know that's not the heart behind your question, Steve. I I appreciate what you're asking, but I just think it's helpful for us to remember that, again, Hebrews 11, obviously we're not going to add anything to the Bible. The canon is closed. But when I think about church history, the examples of those faithful believers, they do kind of represent the next chapter of Hebrews 11, right? All of those Old Testament saints who were faithful, and we could add to their names the New Testament believers, and then faithful men and women of God throughout church history that inspire us to be faithful and to walk in faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. But I love how the author of Hebrews just makes it so clear that while their examples provide for us a cloud of witnesses so that we're motivated to run the race with endurance, we don't fix our eyes on any of them, right? We're not interested in creating Protestant saints, Uh, We understand we're all saints insofar as we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ because we've been sanctified, we've been declared holy, we've been justified, and we're in the process of being made like Christ. But we don't want to put them on a pedestal. Instead, we want to look past them to the one to whom they also looked, fixing our eyes on Christ. And so the study of church history, the study of Reformation history— I do have a Martin Luther bobblehead, I confess, but it's, it's, it was given to me. It's not about collecting little statues of the people that we love in church history. It's about looking past them to Christ so that in the same way that they loved him and wanted to please him, we also, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, make it our ambition to be pleasing to Christ. So, There's some great places to visit, but you don't have to visit them. You can still worship the same Savior that all of these forerunners of church history worshipped simply by fixing your eyes on him and running the race with endurance. Great answer. Thank you for that. Well, we're out of time. Can you uh, thank uh, Nathan here? All right, we'll, we'll take a little, uh, little break time, and then we'll come back and worship together in just a bit.